Bible says, we know and rely on the love God has for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, we know and rely on the love God has for us. Interesting, we know about the love of God. We can read the Bible. We know about the story of God's people all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And before that, in the garden with Adam and Eve, we know the story of the Bible. We know about the kings from King Saul to David to Solomon and others. We know about the prophets and how they pointed to a Messiah. We know about Daniel and his time in the royal court, the Babylonian royal court, and all of the things that happened there. We know the story of the Bible. We know that the prophets pointed to the coming of Jesus, and we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know he lived a remarkable life, free of sin, showing us how we are to live, and we indeed can live. And then he was killed, a brutal, brutal death, laid in the tomb. But then up from the grave, he arose. Resurrection triumphed all over all the forces of evil, crushed them with what he had done on the cross and how he rose back from the dead. So we know the story of Jesus. But I remember reading this little statement from the Bible, we know and rely on the love God has for us. And I had little trouble understanding the no, because I know we can know the story of the Bible. But then I was really fascinated by what does it mean when it says we rely on the love God has for us? Well, welcome back to Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we've been exploring some of these ideas of, of love, and we're going to explore them some more today, and we're going to try to come to grips with this one single verse, we know and rely on the love God has for us. And we specifically want to talk about what does it mean to rely on the love God has for us? What do we do to demonstrate that we rely on the love God has for us? Are there some specific things that God is looking for us to do to rely on his love? Is it just something that happens, or do we need to take specific steps to demonstrate to God that we rely on his love? Well, I'm going to introduce you to three people in a remarkable way. They demonstrated how to rely on the love God has for us. I'm not sure they were thinking that that's what they were doing, but there's little doubt that that's what they were doing. And they showed us by what they did, the higher way of living, the stretch toward Jesus that we all need to aspire to. They showed us what it means to know and rely on the love God has for us. So we're going to take that journey together, and I want to thank you for joining us. We do this for you. I hope this benefits you. Uh, the people at my church, I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and the people here are happy for us to have this time together. They've been very supportive of these broadcasts that we've done together, and they want these to benefit you. Their whole idea would be that if this helps you, they are delighted. They are a group of people that demonstrates the generous nature of what Christians are supposed to be all about. And we want to, on these times that we share together, help all of us come to a better understanding of what faith is really all about. And I've been thinking about that for a long time, and every now and then some of these things really jump out at me, and these are the kinds of things we want to share together. And so I just invite you to make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, whatever suits you, and let's 
let's consider together what the Bible says to us and how it can help us come to know and rely on the love God has for us. So I want to start with a story from Acts chapter 8. You may be familiar with that story. It's the story of a disciple of Jesus named Philip and his encounter with an Ethiopian gentleman. It's very interesting that along comes the angel of the Lord, as the scriptures tell us, and it says to Philip, I want you to take a trip. I want you to go south. Go south on the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, and along that way, you're going to meet an Ethiopian. And so Philip takes the trip. Uh, really interesting that God tells him to take a trip south. A lot of people in the winter in the north in our country want to take a trip south, but I don't think that had anything to do with this. But nonetheless, Philip gets on the road south, and he starts walking, and, and lo and behold, he comes across this gentleman who's an Ethiopian. Now, this Ethiopian is a very important guy, very important official serving the queen of the Ethiopians. And it's obvious from the things that are in the story that he has a lot of money at his disposal. And indeed, it says straight up that he's in charge of the treasury of the queen. So here's a man with money. In, in those days, it was easy for him to, to make a life and to handle things. He had a chariot. Not many people had chariots in those days because it was a necessary. If, it, it, you could only have it if you had money. So, so that's a necessary explanation of how he was so wealthy. Uh, it also says that he was in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah. Now that just kind of goes by us quickly, but realize that a couple of things are at play here. One, he was able to read. Not everybody in ancient times could read, but he had been educated. He was able to read the book of Isaiah. And not only that, he had in his hands a copy of the book of Isaiah. People in those days didn't have a copy of a book. That Books were not easy to come by. They were expensive. But here's this man who commands responsibility for the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia, and he's riding in a chariot, reading from this book, and along comes Philip, and Philip asks him a very insightful question. Do you understand what you are reading? And the man immediately says, well, how can I understand? I've got no one to explain it to me. And so Philip now understands, and it doesn't say this in the story, but obviously Philip understands why he's on that road. So he climbs up into the chariot with the gentleman, and as they go along, Philip begins explaining the scriptures to him. And they started in the prophet Isaiah, and he was reading the passage that, that is recorded there in Acts chapter 8. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And that passage from Isaiah, quoted there in Acts chapter 8, is just riveting. And of course, we can make those connections, we who are familiar with the story of Jesus, because it is talking about Jesus. It's talking about how he died, and he did it willingly. And Philip goes on to explain all of that to the Ethiopian so that the Ethiopian understands the good news or what we might call the gospel of Jesus about how he came and lived and died and came back to life to deliver us from the sin and the evil all around us. And sure enough, the Ethiopian 
hearing all of that, rejoices and sees water and asks to be baptized. And so Philip takes him into the water and baptizes him. And as soon as they come up out of the water, Philip's gone. But the Ethiopian, it says in the scriptures, rejoices. He went on his way rejoicing. You see, he didn't mind that Philip was gone because he had found what he needed most. He had found the savior of the world. He had found Jesus. And that was more valuable and important to him than all the rest of the things combined. He went on his way rejoicing. And there are several things in that passage that, that remind us of important issues because one of the things that we hear a lot about today is this idea of justice. But in this Isaiah passage quoted in Acts, it says, in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice, referring to Jesus. How many cries do we hear today of people demanding justice? Jesus didn't have justice. And that ought to get our attention. His life was taken from the earth. How many people today cry out because a life is lost and demands justice? But in a most remarkable way, Jesus is the answer to those cries for justice. Those cries of, of anguish when people know in their heart, in their soul, in their very bones that something wrong has happened and what can be done to make it right. And we need to explore those ideas these days. We need to help people come to understand that. And a key to that is found in these explorations we're going to make today. And, and we're going to ask ask not, not Philip, he's not here, uh, and, and I'm going to try to help, but we're going to really ask the Lord himself to come and help us, because the Ethiopian said to Philip, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And so we're going to ask God to help us understand, and we're going to use the scriptures that we've been looking at, and a modern-day witness that speaks exactly to the heart of this concept called justice and answers the question about of justice. What do we do to find justice? Is there justice available to us? And how does that connect to this very interesting concept from 1 John chapter 4? We know and rely on the love God has for us. So hang on, we're going to take a, a look at a lot of different things today. We're going to explore them together, and I think it's going to be very helpful, at least I hope so, because that's why we do this. So let's remind ourselves a little bit of where we started last week so we can make sure we're up to speed on this whole concept of, of love and what that might mean when we read, we know and rely on the love God has for us. Well, the first thing that I want to remind us of from last week is that we, we talked a lot about the fact that love is hard. Love is difficult. So many times in the world around us today, we hear references to love and people just seem to think that love is, is easy, that, that love is natural. If we would just let the natural part of us come out, that, that love would be everywhere and everything would be fine. And, and we talked last week and we, we were quite sure that love is difficult. Love is just difficult. There is, there's no way around it. It is not instinctive. It is not natural. It's difficult. And we need to find a way to overcome that difficulty and press on through it because God calls us to be people who demonstrate love. 
We talked about the definition of love last week. We talked about how that Jesus himself in his obedience to God and his willingness to lay down his life for all of us, that he showed us what love is. And the first part of that concept that we see in the life of Jesus was just that he was obedient to God. And so that's what we're called to, to be obedient to God. And Jesus gave himself away out of obedience to the people around him. And so we need to understand that we faithfully follow what God asks us to do, and we give ourselves away to the people around us. That's one reason love is hard, because we tend to be people who want. And we talked about that, that love is not getting what I want. Well, now <laughs> we can all be honest, can't we? Nobody's listening but us. We can all be honest that, that we really like getting what we want. Uh, don't you? I think that's undeniable. We like getting what we want. And sometimes that's good that, that we can accomplish what we want. Uh, but sometimes getting what we want isn't good for us. So love can't be that. And we talked about toddlers. We talked about our friends. And if they want the wrong things, we can't be the people to, to give them the wrong things because that wouldn't be loving. That wouldn't be helpful to them. So love is not getting what we want and it's not giving what my neighbor wants because I need to work for my neighbor's well-being, not just to help my neighbor get everything my neighbor wants. Because ultimately, if I get what I want and my neighbor always gets what he or she wants, then we're all selfish and that is not love. And then we also talked about the model that Jesus gave us. Well, maybe I shouldn't say the model, but the description, the prescription, the commandment that Jesus gave us, we call it the great commandment. Some people came to Jesus and, and asked him about the law. Now, the people in those days, the God's people, valued the law. They believed they were blessed because God had given them the law. They were thankful for the law. And they talked about it. They debated about it. They argued about it. I mean, they really went to town on the law. We don't quite have that same understanding uh, that they did. But we can understand that the law tells us the, the things that God expects us to do. It, it's not what motivates us to do them, but it's what helps us know the difference between right and wrong. Well, anyway, they were having some of their discussions, and Jesus had entered in the conversation at times or two, and they asked Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, they were not entirely forthright in asking that. They were always looking for a way to trip him up and to find out what's really going on. But Jesus gave him an answer, probably an unexpected answer. He actually quoted the scriptures that they had at that time. We take these words from Mark chapter 12. But in answering the question, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus said to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And we need to remind ourselves that, that this is what God has called us to. And we often say that we don't live under the law, and we need to be careful how we mean that, but that's maybe for a different time. But we often say we don't live under the law. We live under the law of love, and that's really a very excellent way of describing it. And so when we love God with all we've got, or as we like to say around our church, when we love God generously, and when we love people graciously, that helps 
us keep on track so that we can fulfill what Jesus asked us to do. And that's an important thing for us when we, and we really work on that. And, and I, I guess I messed you up probably big time. And I guess I intended to get you to think about this because we asked some very on point questions about this concept of loving God and loving neighbor. And I quoted C.S. Lewis, and I want to remind us of that, because if anything can get the people of God on track and keep us on track, it's, it's thinking about these ideas as it relates to how do we live out the love of God in our lives. And C.S. Lewis, in two very well-considered statements and well-considered challenges, points us in the right direction. So when it comes to the concept of loving God with all we've got, C.S. Lewis said this, ask yourself, if I were sure I loved God, what would I do? When you have found the answer, go and do it. So if you haven't asked yourself that question, ask it now. If I were sure I loved God, what would I do? Uh, now, don't answer that lightly, but it's not impossible to answer, and it doesn't take uh, a rocket scientist to answer it. You're able to answer that. The Spirit of God working in you will help you know if I were sure I loved God, what would I do? Because the chances are, if you struggle in this area, that God is already prompting you with something that you need to be doing. So, like Lewis says, if I were sure I loved God, what would I do? Now, some of us don't want to answer that question because the second part of what Lewis said was, when you have found the answer, go and do it. You know, that's, that's a very important concept, this idea of going and doing it. So think about that, pray about that, don't run away from it, stretch toward God. Remember, we can either stretch toward God or shrink from Him, and whichever we do tells us a lot about ourselves, doesn't tell us anything about God, it tells us about ourselves. If I were sure I loved God, what would I do? And when you have found the answer, go and do it. That's the first part, and remember, God comes first, so we do that first. Then as it relates to neighbor, Lewis really cuts to the chase here, and I really like this. Do do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. There's a lot of distractions on that concept of loving neighbor, and I don't want to get into those at this point. There are some, and I've had some good conversations with people about that. But the key here is don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. Act toward your neighbor as if you loved your neighbor. And what would that mean for you, for your life? That's very important. So that's kind of a catch up of what we did last week. And, and now we want to, to, to look forward to, to this idea and explore, based upon the kind of the foundation from, from those thoughts, explore this idea of 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. We know and rely on the love God has for us. So you can read through 1 John, and there's a lot of conversation that, that John has with us as his readers about this concept of love. And it talks about how love comes from God and, and a lot of those things. So let's just unpack that a little bit. We can't unpack all of it, but we can get some of it and it'll help us a great deal in moving in the right direction. So indeed, the first thing that we want to talk about is that love comes from God. Uh, a love and, and the actions of love are evidence that a person is born of God. That's what the scripture says straight up. So if, if we're followers of Jesus, then, then love is something that we practice because that's the evidence of it. And so love comes from God, and the evidence comes when we 
express our love by what we do for God and for our neighbors. The second really interesting thing comes from that same passage in 1 John chapter 4. It comes from verse 12. And verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now I'm reading from the New International Version and I should always remember and I'll try to always remember to tell you which translation I'm using, which English translation. It's not because it's the perfect one or the only one or even the best one. Remember, the best English translation, as far as I can tell, is the one that you understand and will read. So I want to encourage you to, to take some time to read it. So here it is again. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So that's really quite interesting. His love is made complete in us if we love one another. So our love for our neighbors is the way God's love becomes complete in us. So, you know, the temptation to say, well, if you knew my neighbor, well, yeah, I suppose that might be true. If you knew that sorry rascal at work, well, that could be true. But, you know, I don't find any place in the scripture that it says that, that because they're a sorry rascal that that we as followers of Jesus can just skip them and not love them. So I really want us to think about that. And that's, a, that I think is a key to many people's uh, frustrations in life. People who sometimes wonder, am I a faithful follower of Jesus? Uh, our love is complete by the love we demonstrate to other people. And, and I'm not saying it's easy. I already said love is hard and I'm not backing down on that. It definitely is hard. But we need to realize that God completes his love in us by how we treat other people. And so we need to take that seriously. We need to put that into practice. And the third thing I want us to think about from this passage that uh, I'm pointing us to in 1 John chapter 4 is, is back to this verse that I started with from verse 16. We know and rely on the love God has for us. Now, when I started looking into this, I thought this is going to be really uh, something. I'm, I'm going to have to wrestle with this, and, and it's going to be difficult, and I, I'm not sure if I'm going to come to a satisfactory answer, because uh, if, if you know me, you know I, uh, I demand a lot when it comes to satisfactory answers. I, I don't take the, the trite and the trivial. I, I want to have something that's based upon the text of the Bible that really stands up to scrutiny and that I can have confidence in, that I can, for lack of a better word, defend to myself or anyone else. But as I looked at this, I became suddenly aware that this is not so different than other things that the Bible has talked to us about. It just says it differently here, and I think really helpfully. So there's two concepts that it, that it refers to. We know and rely on the love God has for us. And, and the knowing is we know Jesus, we know the story of Jesus, we know that Jesus life, death, and resurrection demonstrates to us the love of God. And so we know those things. That's not hard for us to, to get our heads around. We know the story of the Bible. We know the story of Jesus. We may not know every detail, but we know essentially that Jesus is the son of God and he came to give his life for us. We know that. Now, the second part of that, where it says rely on the love God has for us, that really got my attention. Uh, because I, I, my first thought was, well, of course we rely on the love of God. How else would we know how to find our way to heaven? We have to rely on God's love because God loved us. Who doesn't 
love love who doesn't love the love of god uh, isn't that obvious well yeah that probably is obvious but that's an illustration that uh, that that wasn't enough i had to look at that a little bit further and so I started looking at it a little bit further, and I'm not an expert on languages. I never pretend to be. I don't ever want anybody to think I'm an expert, but I depend upon the good work of other experts in languages. So I looked a little further, and I discovered that this English translation in the NIV, we know and rely on the love God has for us, really does get to the heart of a concept that I've been working on for a while now. So often the Bible says we need to believe we need to believe in Jesus. We need to believe God. And it uses that word believe a lot, that English word believe a lot. And many other English translations in this very verse that I'm talking about use the word believe. Well, that got my attention because you remember we've talked about the concept of believe on an earlier show that we shared together. We talked about the concept of believe. And we realize that believe, as the Bible uses it, not necessarily as we tend to use it, has a layer of meaning beyond what's obvious to us. We usually think believe means, is it true? And so if I believe it, I believe that it's true. So if you were to tell me something, you believe I would believe that you are telling me the truth because you would be telling me the truth. And that's the idea behind believe as we use it. I believe lots of people that they're telling me the truth. I believe some people this morning that they were telling me the truth. But the way believe is used in the scriptures is well illustrated by this English translation of 1 John 4, verse 16 in the NIV. We know and rely on the love God has for us. And that idea of rely is that we actually do something about the idea that God has loved us and that God loves us now. So I've said before that the idea of believe is that, yes, we believe it's true, but it also means that we are invited by Jesus to change our lives and give allegiance to him because he's the king that came and we can trust him and there's a new king that showed up. His name is Jesus and we can give allegiance to him or we can rely on him. See, that's where I find that 1 John chapter 4 really helps a great deal because it reminds me that I can believe that it's true, but I also can rely on it. In other words, I can put it into practice, and that matters so very much. You remember the story, and perhaps you do, of the, of the wise builder and the foolish builder. Jesus told this story in Matthew chapter 7, and he talked about how the wise builder built his house upon a firm foundation of stone, and the foolish builder built his house on a terrible foundation of sand. And as Jesus explains the story, and it's a short story, and it's obvious, and it's not hard for us to understand, when the rain fell and the storm came and the lightning crashed and whatever else went on for that storm, the house that was built on a solid foundation stood up to the storm. It wasn't washed away. But that same storm came to the house that was built on the sand, and it was the foolish builder and that house was swept away by the storm. Tragic loss. And we all think, well, that's obvious. We should build our houses on solid foundations. Why, why would we not think that we should do that? And that's true. But the point that Jesus was making was 
a life built on a solid foundation is a life that puts Jesus' commands into practice. We actually do what he calls us to do. We don't just learn about it. We don't just talk about it. We actually do it. And that's this idea of rely. Do we actually do what God is calling us to do? And so when we look at C.S. Lewis's quote that we talked about earlier, when you find what it means for you to love God then, and what you should do about that, then you actually do it. That's where we're going to, on this idea of rely, that we actually do it. When we know that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, then we don't waste time wondering about that or thinking about that. We just act toward our neighbor as if we love them. That's the point of Jesus' parable of the wise man and the foolish man. It's not just so we'll be better builders and we'll make sure our houses are on the right foundation. It's, it's not that at all. It's so that our lives will be built on a foundation of putting into practice what Jesus tells us is the right way to live. Because what he wants for us is the best life possible. And he imagines a life so much better than what we tend to imagine for ourselves. And so he wants us to hear what he says and to put those things into practice. They're generally summarized by putting God first, loving him with all you've got, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Then there are a whole lot of other specific things that, that he calls us to do. And for some of us, it's one thing. For some of us, another. The key is to find what God is asking you to do. Some of them we have in common. Some of them are specific, are specific to each one of us. And that's how we come to know and to rely on the love God has for us. Well, in just a moment, we're going to need to take a break, and I'm going to further explore this with a with a story that is absolutely riveting. It, it's it's delightful to tell, and it's challenging to consider. And we want to explore the testimony of these three people and what it means to us to know and to rely on the love God has for us. So don't go away. Make yourself comfortable. We'll be back in just a moment. back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all.
Glad to have you hanging in there with us as we explore some of these really significant concepts from the Bible. The Bible does stretch us, and if you're looking for an easy way and an easy believism, as sometimes it's called, I, I don't think you'll find it in following Jesus. It's a challenging thing, doable, possible, delightful. Living the life that he calls us to live is the best way to live. There is no question about it, but I'm not going to pretend that you're not going to be stretched because you will, and the more you allow God to stretch you, the more delight you will find because the farther away from certain temptations, you will find yourself moving. So hang in there, keep following, don't give up. God's not giving up on you. So let's keep exploring this journey together as we look at this idea of knowing and relying on the love God has for us. And there are a couple of key things that we talked about that I just wanna revisit just as we're going forward. Now, it's absolutely amazing to me in verse 12 of. 1 John chapter 4, that God says to us that his love is com made complete in us by our love for other people. Uh, that is a really challenging thing because there's always someone that challenges us. But God wants to complete his love in us. How can we be the kind of person that is, lives a life characterized by love? Well, the way we do that is that we learn how we can love other people maybe especially the ones that are most difficult, because those stretch us. I wouldn't go so far as to encourage you to pray for a difficult person in your life so you can know how to be stretched. I don't know that I would recommend that. I think you'll find enough of those people anyway. But we want to we wanna have God's love made complete in us by stretching in his direction. And then the second idea is that we need to know and rely on the love of God and the love God has for us. And that idea of rely... I suggested earlier, points us to what we need to do about that. So I want to introduce you to a couple of people that I've never met, except in the pages of, a, of their story, but whose testimony just is riveting. It was back in October of 2019, a trial took place, and a young man stood up to testify in that trial. His name was Brant Jean. He was the younger brother of, of Botham Jean, who was shot and killed by an off-duty police officer whose name is Amber Geiger. The story riveted the nation and got lots of attention, and it, it really gripped that community. There was a lot of tension about the whole business of how that would be handled and would a just outcome result, all of those kinds of things. Um, and sure enough, in the trial, the jury found the defendant, Amber Geiger, guilty. And I think it was during the sentencing phase. I, I couldn't find that when I was checking on the story, but that's usually the way these things play out. During the sentencing phase, members of, of the deceased young man, Botham Jean's family had an opportunity to speak. And so his younger brother took the stand and, and was talking in, in that courtroom, and, and it absolutely shook the courtroom and the observers that were following it. it. It should shake, and I think it shakes us yet to this day. But Brant Jean, on the his opportunity to speak, said this, I wasn't ever going to say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, 
I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. Now, when you hear that, that's just stunning. Here's a young man whose older brother was killed by an off-duty police officer. Nothing, nothing anyone can do will bring him back to life. Hating her, holding a grudge against her, nothing will help him. There's nothing in the world that can punish her and make it equivalent to the pain that Brant Jean and his family must feel. Uh, it's just simply stunning. But notice that he says very clearly, without equivocation, I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want. He goes on and he says, I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. And he concludes, I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. That, that is simply hard to imagine, isn't it? That a young man could get up in front of the whole world, in front of that courtroom, where it's just been decided that this young lady had killed his brother, but he was not going to wish vengeance for her or on her. He wasn't going to hate her. He wasn't going to erupt and spew forth venom of all kinds out of his anguish and pain. We might have understood if he had done that, if he had condemned her, if he had expressed the hate that it would be so easy to express. We, we might have understood that. But instead, he chose to forgive her and to speak to her in terms that offered her hope and a future and a path forward. Stunning. Well, Botham Jean's father also had a chance to speak. And he got up and he, he followed what his son said with uh, similar words. He said, I felt the same way. I wish I could have extended you the same courtesy. That is what Christ would want us to do. If you will not forgive, neither will your father forgive you. I don't want to see her rot in hell. I don't want to see her rot in prison. I hope this will change her life. Now think about that. This is all said to Amber Geiger. She's hearing all of this from the very people whose lives she shattered in that moment when she pulled the trigger. But she hears this father say, I want to extend to you a courtesy. Where does that come from? Extending a courtesy to the one who killed your son. But he said it and he meant it. Notice that he said that this is what Christ would want us to do and how it was Jesus who said we needed to forgive lest we would not be forgiven. Notice he said, I don't want to see her rotten hell. I don't want to see her rotten prison. He hopes that this extension of what we would call forgiveness will change her life. Can you imagine that? We hear all these cries for law and order, justice, all this stuff's got to be made right. Will we ever get justice? And, and in a moment when these two family members could have cried out, could have unleashed on the world all of the pain and the venom 
of their anguish. Instead, forgiveness erupted. I guess you could say they were turning the other cheek. And, and, and that sometimes has happened. I've heard other and read other stories of, of people who offer forgiveness in the most challenging of, of situations. It's just, I, I admire such people more than I know how to express, just as I admire um, Brant Jean and his father. But something else happened in that courtroom that's just equally riveting. The presiding judge, Tammy Kemp, stepped down from the bench, walked over to Amber Geiger, and handed her, Amber, the judge's personal Bible. And she said to Amber Geiger, remember, this is a police officer in a moment, shattered these people's lives, but now the presiding judge is standing in front of her and handing her a Bible and saying, you haven't done so much that you can't be forgiven. You did something bad in one moment of time. What you do now matters. And then she leaned down and whispered in Amber Geiger's ear, ma'am, it's not because I am good. It's because I believe in Christ. None of us are worthy. Did you ever imagine something like this would take place in a court of law? Did you ever imagine that a judge would stand down from the bench and walk to a guilty defendant and admonish them that you did one thing bad in a moment, but what you do now matters? Can you imagine the heart of love that came from Brant Jean, from his father, from this judge, for a woman who by all accounts made a terrible error in judgment and took the life of a young man. And it's not about anger and vengeance and venom and pain and justice and all of these things. For these people, it was about forgiveness, a new start, an extra opportunity, about knowing Jesus, about having a life made new. It's, it's stunning to think about that. John Newton summarized it pretty well. He said, there are two things I know. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You see, this is, this is the answer to the anguish of our times. And I don't say this lightly or tritely, but the only answer to the struggles that we find ourselves in and the, the difficulty between people, the only answer is found in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can know and rely on the love God has for us, and we can forgive each other. We really can. And he invites us to do that. There is grace and power for our lives and for the lives of the people around us when we extend to them forgiveness. And it's not because any of us are worthy, not that at all. It's because of Jesus, and he makes the difference in our lives, and we need to follow that example. Now, I wish that the story included that everybody heard the testimony of these two fine people and the judge. I, I wish the story was that people were so caught up by what they did that it changed the perspective of the people all around observing the court. It didn't. 
outside the courthouse, there were continued chants of no justice, no peace. There were continued questions asked like, how many of us does it take to get justice? And I wanted to leave this part out of the story because it's really sad, but there was a pastor outside that courthouse that shouted, it's amazing how quickly injustice can be seized, can be seized from the hands of justice. This is a travesty. Apparently that pastor didn't grasp what Brant Jean was saying. Apparently he couldn't understand the heart of that father who extended forgiveness to the young woman who took the life of his son. But the heart of the gospel is the realization that, that we can and we must forgive. Later in the court proceedings, Judge Kemp, the presiding judge, kind of gave closure to the whole story when she said to Brant Jean, thank you for the way you modeled Christ. Stunning for the judge to say it. Thank you for the way you modeled Christ. See, this is the testimony of Jesus in the public square, in all of the things. Thank you for the way you modeled Jesus. I, I guess in a sense, we heard in the judge's words, we heard the words of Jesus to Brant Jean, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I think all of us can say, well done. It's, it's a remarkable thing to extend forgiveness like that, isn't it? It's a remarkable thing. Now, a lot of people piled on with outrage that, that the judge would do such a thing, that, that Botham Jean's family would do such a thing, but they did it. And they showed us what it means to be followers of Jesus. Now, I know and you know that forgiveness is a wonderful idea. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. <laughs> Boy, that's for sure, isn't it? Forgiveness is a great idea when we read a story about other people who demonstrate forgiveness, but it's much more challenging for us. But when we think about this idea of, of knowing and relying on the love God has for us, isn't forgiveness the way we demonstrate that we rely on the love of God? Isn't that the heart of what God is calling his followers, his people to in these days when there's so much anguish, so much turmoil, so much hate, so much division? Isn't he calling us to set the example? Isn't he calling us to forgive when we have something that we need to forgive? Isn't he calling us to stretch toward him instead of shrinking away? Maybe we need to think about it this way. Brant Jean knew about the pain of losing his brother. Botham's father knew about the pain of losing a son. There's nothing that I know about this story that indicates they minimize that at all. And, and there's nothing that I would say that we should minimize the pain of some of the things that happened to us. I don't know what might've happened to you, have no idea. But I know that there's a better way and that way is forgiveness. Brant Jean, when he extended that forgiveness, he, he in a sense said, and essentially said, all the hurt, all the pain, all the disappointment of not having a life with my brother, everything that I can 
can describe that I feel and everything that I can't describe that I feel, Jesus took on himself at the cross. And he essentially said, I don't need vengeance because Jesus took care of that. He asked me on his behalf to extend love. And, and one of the things that I think we miss in this idea of forgiveness is we all who have come face to face with our own sin, we all understand that we need to be forgiven. It's not too complicated to realize that when I've done what God says I shouldn't, or when I've failed to do what God says I should, that I have sinned. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned. We've all messed up. And we all can kind of come to grips with the idea that we need forgiveness. And, and we do. We do. And so we, we revel in that. We realize that, that that's Jesus' invitation to us, that we should change our lives, stop doing that stuff, Stop doing that stuff that God said don't and start doing the stuff he's called us to. And there's two sides of that coin. And I mentioned them both on purpose because a lot of times people think it's just about stopping something, but it's also about starting what God called us to. Remember what C.S. Lewis says, when you've figured out what it is that you need to do because you love God, then do it. That's what I mean by that. There are some things we need to do on purpose intentionally because that's what God has called us to. So we, but we all understand the need for forgiveness. We all understand that when we stand before God, we're going to need to know that he has forgiven us. So that part we can come to grips with, but, but when people face a real loss, a real something to forgive, a real situation like losing your brother, losing your son, we need to remember one other thing. The Bible reminds us and teaches us that, that, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sin of the world. Now, usually, I think most of us think of that, that he died for the things that we did, for our sin. And that's true, he did. But you notice that the Bible is very careful in the way it says that. It says he died for all sin. So that means not only did he die for the stuff that we personally understand in ourselves, but he died for all of the things that someone else did to us like taking the life of a brother, a son. So it might help you to come to forgiveness when you realize that in dying on the cross, all of the pain you feel from that person that, that hurt you in whatever way you're hurt, maybe betrayed a confidence, maybe uh, lied about you, maybe made promises to you that they did not keep, maybe spoke ill of you to someone and undermined your good word or your good uh, name, all of those things, all of them and whatever they are, Jesus took on the cross and he took care of them too. We were never ever created to carry that stuff. We were created to give it to him and to walk away and to extend to everybody else what Jesus extends to us. And in our times with all of the pain and all of the hurt and all of the stuff that, that we could go on forever talking about, all of this distress, we find in the gospel of Jesus, the remedy for the pain, the remedy for the anguish, the answer to the cries of the broken hearts, the answer is in forgiveness and following Jesus. He is the one who makes the wrongs right. He is the one that, that restores our souls. And you see, 
the verse we talked about earlier, when we extend to other people the love that God has given to us, his love is made complete in us. Far too many people struggle these days. Far too many people carry a load of emotional and whatever other baggage you want to describe because they have failed to lay down the hurts from other people and to allow the love of God to flow through them and become complete in them. And for many people, it starts with forgiveness. That's what it means to rely on the love God has for us. What's the scripture say? We know and rely on the love God has for us. And that's what I pray for you today. That's what I pray for myself. That's what I pray for all people, that we would come to know and rely on the love God has for us. It's not enough just to know about it. We have to start relying on it. We have to start building our lives on following what Jesus said to do so that we can find our way to that freedom, that life that the Bible promises. Because it's real and is available, and we can walk in newness of life in ways we probably could not begin to imagine. And I'm so glad that the spirit of the living Christ came to a young man named Brant Jean, and he gave testimony to what that meant, that he wanted the best for this young woman. He didn't want the worst. He wanted the best. I'm so glad it came to his father that echoed those very words that said, I forgive. Jesus said we needed to forgive. I'm, I'm so glad for a judge that was brave enough in a moment to express her confidence in the way, the truth, the life to a young woman whose confidence had to have been shattered, whose life appeared to have been completely shattered, but who now heard from the judge, you did something bad, but that's not what's important now. It's what you do now. And that's what matters to you and to me. We can't go back and redo the things in our lives. We can't go back and undo the mistakes we've made. We can't go back and do any of that. But starting today, we can know and rely on the love God has for us. You can, I can, we all can. And yes, if you're human, you probably have regrets. And you might be thinking, well, I wish God had talked to me about this before so that I could have not lived with the 10 years, two years, five years, I don't know, of regret. I wish I'd understood the freedom that comes from forgiving. Well, now you do. You can't go back and change all of that, but you can follow the judge's admonition because what matters is starting from now and finding that fresh start and allowing the love of God to be made complete in you as you forgive the people around you. You see, that's what faith is. That's what we come to understand when we have confidence in Jesus. I often say faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And you know, when I have confidence in his trustworthiness, then I can do what he says. I can put into practice what he asked me to put into practice, and so can you. And in the doing that, we can find that the love of God is made complete in us in a way that's difficult to describe sometimes, but wonderful to experience because we can come to know and rely on the love God has for us. 
Well, I appreciate you joining me and, and really taking to heart these things that God has for us because they are the path to changing our lives. And if we really do want to have the life God meant for us, we do need to change our lives. And this is one step that helps many people to actually put into practice the forgiveness that God has given us and we extend it to other people. So I hope you join us next week. We're going to talk about some of these things some more, and we're going to continue to explore this idea of faith. If for perchance this has been helpful to you and you'd like to listen, the podcast is available. You can find it right here on the network uh, soon after this program finishes. If you want to, you can subscribe to it by many of the other podcast platforms, and I invite you to do that. Because what we want to do is we want to help each other stretch toward God's high calling. And we want to be found faithful. And we want to know what life really is. Because we want to strive together to find that faith really is confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Because we can trust Him. Amen.